this time, I invite Paul to come up and speak with us what the Lord has laid upon his heart. And just again, thank you so much for fitting us into your busy schedule. Hey, you did it for me. Thank you. <laughs> Very thankful. What a soul-stirring time of worship and singing praises to God, right? Amen. I love to hear those voices singing out to praise the Lord. And I trust that that last song we sang is a testimony in your heart that you can affirm without any hesitation, it is well with my soul. Everything else can go wrong, but if it's wrong, if it's right with my soul, all is right. And we praise God for that. Before we open God's Word, just a very brief couple of comments regarding the mission activity. I shared a more detailed report in the Sunday School. But let me just remind all of you to, to engage with us in prayer for the following items. Number one, continue to pray for Matthew and Michelle Rissacar, brand new missionary couple just came on board with us. This past week we received their letter of acceptance of invitation to serve with us. They will be assigned to Kingman Bible Church over in Kingman, Arizona. They're in the process of making transition in their life. They have five teenage, well, actually the oldest one is 20, uh, children. And so there's a major transition going on in the Rissacar family. Uh, pray for them. They're trying to raise their transition uh, budget as well as prepare for a candidate school and orientation. And then hopefully, by God's grace, being on the field this coming fall. Continue to pray for our need in Green River with the Hispanic ministry. I shared this in Sunday school, but Jonathan and Grissel, G-R-I-S-E-L, Gomez, are looking at that over the Thanksgiving break. I'll be traveling out to Green River to meet with them and with Pastor Kirk and Paula as we seek God's provision for a Spanish-speaking couple to develop and lead the Hispanic ministry there in Green River, Utah. And then the last one I want to share with you, continue to pray with us for God to provide not only the finances for these couples, but we have undertaken a major project by the direction of our board to relieve me from driving an unworthy, unsafe vehicle, transitioning into a more trustworthy and more mechanically sound vehicle. Most of you are aware of this, but uh, we were privileged to purchase a 2014 Jeep Patriot, uh, traveling in the western states in the mountains with four-wheel drive, that is something that is not necessarily mandatory, but sure is a blessing to have. But the board made an exception to some of our policies, and that is they allowed us to take funds from another account so that we could purchase the Jeep. They said, Paul, you are the director. You're the one who benefits from the use of the Jeep. It's your responsibility to raise the funds to replace that back into an account that really helps sustain our vision for church planting. And so we're asking God at this point to raise up 100 one-time gifts of $130 apiece. If we were to do that, our need would be met. And I share this almost every place I go because the board has asked me to just let the folks know that we're trusting God to see this need met and those funds replenished so that we can use them in our church planning efforts and sustaining our church planning ministry rather than having them invested solely in a vehicle. And so we're asking God to do that. And if you would like to participate in that, that would be a great blessing to us. 
One other announcement I'd like to make as well, because I'm kind of, you know, technically uh, hampered. Computers and things on computers kind of, you know, just challenge me greatly. I'm really challenged in that area. So we have been resistant. By we, I mean me, myself, and I. Okay. <laughs> we have been resistant to step forward into the issue of online giving to the mission. Simply because I didn't know how to make it work. <laughs> but with some help and some guidance, we have made that available. And if that would be something that you could utilize as you plan your gifts, etc., you can go to our website, uh, www.rsbce.org, and on the home page and on the contact page, there are Donate Now buttons, which will take you to a very secure uh, online donation service. And uh, we're just trying to make that available. The board have been asking me to say, look, you've got to get caught up with the times. I said, well, we're working at it. It just takes me a long time to take a step. But, <laughs> but that's available now, so if you'd like to utilize that, it's certainly there for you. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me again to the passage that Brother Jim read for us in Titus? One of the things that God has brought to my mind in this role of being a director of church planning mission and working with church planners is constantly going back to the pastoral epistles and reminding ourselves of biblical framework for church and church planting. Uh, we want to stay connected to the truth of God's Word as we develop the models and the, the structures and the methodologies that we utilize in planting churches. So I was reading through the book of Titus again. Uh, this passage here in chapter 2 really just kind of came off the page and arrested my attention once again. If you're familiar with the book of Titus, you know that Paul is writing to a young pastor who is left on the island of Crete, and he sent him there to set some things in order so that the church there would be complete and, and functioning and, and performing well in the context of God's plan and God's purpose. And in chapter 1, one of the first things that Titus is instructed to do is to appoint elders. It's not my point to talk about that this morning, but I firmly believe that godly biblical leadership is foundational and fundamental to the health of a local church. Don't ever fall prey to the thought that that's only the pastor's responsibility. All through scriptures we see a plurality of elders, qualified godly men who come alongside each other for the sake of overseeing the ministry of shepherding God's people. Then in chapter 2, Paul instructs Titus to, to teach certain groups of people within the fellowship. First part of chapter 2, he talks about older men and younger men and teaching them how to live out their life in, in the context of the grace of God and, and in the context of the fellowship of the church. And again, that's not my focal point for this message this morning. But let me simply ask you to do something on my behalf as I do for you. And that is, as I age, pray that I will finish well. I don't say this in any judgment of anybody because nobody's on my mind right now. But I do say it in the context of observation after being over 40 years in the ministry. Sometimes we don't finish well. And God talks about older men. 
and how they are to continue to strive to, to lead and direct and, and live in certain ways. And I know that our physical conditions change and our health issues are a part of that aspect. Let's come back to our song, Is It Well With Your Soul? Is your soul strong and doing well in your walk with the Lord, even though this outer tabernacle is deteriorating and one day will be laid aside? Then he talks about young men, the aggressive strong men, and how they are to live, the older women and younger women. And as I read through that passage again, this passage now in chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, took on a nuance to me that I hadn't really considered before. How in the world can you and I, as the men and women of a local church, ever fulfill what he tells us to do in those passages? How can the older men live like, the, like they're instructed, the younger men live like they're instructed, the older women, the younger women? It all relates to this term that I want to dwell on this morning, and that is the word grace. As I look back over my ministry of over 40 years now, as I stand before you again as people who are dear to my heart and, and woven into the, the fabric of my life so deeply, there's only one reason why I can stand here. You know it's not because of who I am, because you know me. but because of what God has done. It's all of grace. It's all of grace. And the more I serve my Lord, the more I'm caught up in the wonder and the majesty and the magnitude of grace. This word grace is a captivating term. It's an English translation of the Greek term charis. We've often defined it as the unmerited favor or kindness bestowed upon another. And perhaps most of us have heard the little acrostic definition, God's riches at Christ's expense. And that is simplistic and yet profound. God's riches, everything that God is in and of himself as he bestows it upon us, is ours at the expense of the Lord Jesus Christ and his work for us. There's an underlying concept in this word that should penetrate our minds and our hearts. Grace is always unmerited. Let that sink in for a little bit. Grace is always unmerited. You and I do not deserve grace, nor can we merit it. It is bestowed by God out of the attributes of his love, his kindness, his goodness, his mercy, his grace. The reason why that's important is because grace is a term that helps us to understand that in the receiving of grace, there is a response, according to Peter, of humility. And humility is that, that opposite of the tendency of our old Adamic nature to want to raise its ugly head in pride. We like to pat ourselves on the back. We like to think we are really something. 
We like to think that we have achieved well and therefore God is pleased. And this word grace cuts across that and reminds us that anything we are and all that we have achieved and whatever we have received, we receive because God is a God of grace. There have been a number of songs written about grace, marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Perhaps the most familiar, of course, is the song Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I wish some of the newer hymnals had not changed that word because it, it deteriorates the intent of the author, John Newton, who understood the wretchedness of his life and the grace of God that saved him out of it. I once was lost, but now I am found. Was blind, but now I see. But that second verse is one that I love. It was grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. This term grace is used over 170 times. It permeates the New Testament. It's used regularly in the Apostle Paul's writings. And it's in one of Paul's epistles that I want us to look this morning at this amazing grace and see some of the glorious truths that flow out of grace to you and I. Grace, it truly is amazing. And here in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, we're going to, to look at uh, just four quick observations that the text brings to us as we consider this word grace. First of all, in chapter 2, verse number 11, the manifestation that grace reveals. Secondly, in chapter 2, verse number 12, the instruction that grace teaches. Thirdly, in chapter 2, verse 13, the anticipation that grace brings. And fourth, in chapter 2, verse 14, the purpose that grace fulfills. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, this morning as we open your word, we are thankful for the declaration of truth called the revelation of God, inscripturated for us in holy writing. We might know the mind and heart of God as he has revealed it through the prophets and the apostles and the writers of the books of the Bible. Inspired by the Spirit of God, inerrant, authoritative. Oh God, as we as we yield our lives to your book today, the truth of your word, speak to our hearts, O oh Lord. Open our eyes of understanding. Illuminate our minds to comprehend. Change our lives by the grace that you have bestowed upon us. So that we walk out of here this morning changed by the Spirit of God, the Word of God, and the grace of God. In whatever avenue of change that means for us, individually. Lord, deliver us 
from just the enjoyment of another worship service, but transform us into the likeness of your dear Son, which is your purpose in grace. Father, I'm thankful to be here again, to stand in this hallowed place to proclaim your word. O Spirit of God, fall fresh upon us. Work in and through us that Christ our Savior would be glorified both now and forevermore. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Coming back to our text here in chapter 2, verse number 11, the manifestation that grace reveals. As we seek to unpack this passage of Scripture, I want to direct our attention to three observations from the text here in verse number 11. First of all, notice in the text the source of grace. It's interesting that verse 11 opens in a very unusual grammatical structure in the Greek. In the Greek text, the verb appear stands first in the emphatic position. And we'll come back to that in more detail in just a moment. But to translate it literally, you would read, appeared the grace of God. Now please note in the text the, the little phrase, for the grace of God, because within that simple little phrase, we're introduced to the source of grace. The prepositional phrase of God is the genitive case denoting possession. In other words, grace is, a, is inherent in the very nature of God himself. He possesses grace. He is the one that is the, characterized by the attribute of grace. And Paul is simply implying through this little phrase that the origin, the source of grace is resident in and it flows out of God himself. It's an attribute, one of those characteristics that make up the very nature of God. God is holy. God is love. God is kind. God is righteous. God is just. God is merciful. God is grace. The entire activity of redemption is rooted in the grace of God. His free and unmerited favor and spontaneous action toward needy sinners to deliver us and to transform us. This same truth is set forth in a familiar passage of Scripture in the book of Ephesians. Would you take your Bibles and turn there for just a moment? Ephesians chapter 2. And for sake of the time that we have, I will not dwell on the entire passage of Scripture. But in chapter 2 of Ephesians, verse number 1, the condition of mankind is stated, and you who were dead in trespasses and sin. But if you let your eyes glance down the page, you come to verse number 5. Even when we were dead in sins, God hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace, you are saved. 
And then you come down the page to the very familiar verse, verse number 8. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so what we begin to see is simply this, that the origin of grace is in God himself, in his redemptive, spontaneous work towards sinful mankind. Now, this simple little phrase, for the grace of God, lays the foundation of man's salvation in God. It does not lay it in man's ability. It does not lay it in man's works. It does not lay it in man's achievements. It does not lay it in man's religious activity. Rather, it is in the sovereign grace of God himself. Scripture is clear on this profound truth. Apart from the grace of God, man has no redemption. That's why when you read in, second, I mean, in Ephesians chapter 2, we were dead in our trespasses of sin, but God, who is rich, stepped into our need because of his grace. Secondly, in verse number 11, observe with me the manifestation of grace. It says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared. And now we come back to that grammatical structure of this verse where the verb appeared is the first word of the text. The interesting term speaks of the epiphany of grace. Standing in an emphatic position, Paul is emphasizing the manifestation of God's grace as a historical reality. This term means to become visible, to make an appearance. And it conveys the image of grace suddenly breaking upon the moral condition of men as the bright light of a morning sun. The tense of the verb speaks to the fact that he is implying uh, an action in the past. He's looking at something that's happened in the past. It has appeared. And what we need to understand is that Paul is not only speaking about the attribute of God, which is grace, but through the use of this verb and the tense that he uses, he's directing the reader to the concept of the incarnation of grace in Jesus Christ. Grace is an attribute of God, but his attribute of God could not be understood apart from the incarnation of the Son of God. That's why it's so profoundly important for us to realize that the attributes of God resided in Jesus Christ, in his incarnation, all of them. He voluntarily set aside the independent use of some, but they were all there. That's why Jesus could say to his disciples, if you have seen me, you have seen what? You have seen the Father. Philip said, oh Lord, just show us the Father. And Jesus said, take a look. You're looking. You've seen me, you've seen him. And so Paul says to us in this passage that this, this marvelous attribute of God, this thing called grace, has appeared 
among men. Now, how do I know that he's talking about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ when he uses this word grace appearing? Well, let's stay in the text for just a moment and drop down to chapter 3 of Titus. Look at verse 3. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Man, don't you just dislike being described like that? (laughs) But that's what we were. Verse number 14, what is the very first word? But after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. Here are two more attributes of God. Loving kindness. And Paul says in Titus the same thing. These attributes appeared. Okay. That helps a little bit. Let's go back to John chapter 1. Because the force of this verb talks of an epiphany, the appearing of something. In the text, it's talking about grace. But that appearing was a visible understanding or comprehension of grace. It was something that was seen. And so we find in John chapter 1, look at verse number 14. And the word was made flesh, and he dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of his only begotten of the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. Verse 16, and of his fullness have we all received, and grace for grace. And so this manifestation of grace is the manifestation of the incarnate Son of God who came into this world that you and I might not only experience grace, but might see it in tangible form in the person of Jesus Christ. So when Paul writes here in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, for has appeared the grace of God, he is drawing the attention of the reader to the fact of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the embodiment of grace. Man could never have understood or formed an adequate concept of the grace of God apart from its personal manifestation in Christ. And then thirdly, coming back to Titus chapter 2, we've seen that grace is found, it originates in God himself. It was manifested in the Son of God. Its purpose, the purpose of the appearing of God's grace is stated in the phrase, bringing salvation to all men. This simple word salvation sums up the longing of God that is manifested in his redemptive work because it denotes deliverance, rescue, and release from sin. It's a term that is used many times in Scripture, and unless the context would indicate otherwise, when this term is used, it refers to salvation or redemption from sin, to to bring deliverance from sin and its consequences, deliverance from our spiritual death and separation from God 
and its penalty, eternal condemnation. And so grace truly is amazing. As Paul unfolds it here, he says that it is found in in God himself. He is the source of all grace. It is manifested in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it relates to our salvation, our redemption. It has appeared bringing salvation to all men. Come back to chapter 2 now and look at verse number 12. There's a manifestation that grace reveals, the manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ and his saving work. There's also an instruction that grace teaches. As fundamentally important as salvation from the penalty of sin is, Paul goes on to emphasize in this passage that salvation is also from the power and the practice of sin in our life. In Jesus Christ, God's redeeming grace breaks sin's power and dominion in our lives and gives us a new nature and desires for holiness and righteousness and godly living. Now notice in the text in verse number 12, Paul goes on to say that grace instructs, that is, it teaches us. And this teaching is both negative and positive. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. You see, grounded in God's nature, grace makes ethical demands of believers consistent with his nature. This term teaches comes from a Greek word meaning to instruct, to train, to disciple. And suggests the idea that those who have experienced the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ in salvation are now brought into a school with Christ of grace that teaches them how to live out that life in Jesus Christ. Grace not only saves me from the penalty of my sin, grace saves me from the power of sin and the practice of sin in my life. Biblically, and hear this closely, biblically, we cannot come to the conclusion that some would suggest when they say something like this, well, I am saved by grace, I am under grace so I can live as I want. That is an unbiblical conclusion. This verse alone proves it. That is called in scriptures licentiousness. Don't fall prey to that errant theology. If grace has touched your life in salvation, Grace is teaching you how to live. Now what's it teaching me? Notice in the text that the first part of the instruction of grace is to deny certain things. And here we have a rub. Because you and I don't want to be denied anything. But the Spirit of God, the grace of God is teaching me that I personally deny certain things in my life. And there are two words that are used here ungodliness, and worldly lust. And those two words kind of summarize all of those things that war against us in our natural Adamic fallen nature. 
Ungodliness is a term that speaks of impiety and irreverence. It refers to the lack of true reverence for God and devotion to Him. Romans 1.18, I don't have time to turn there, jot it down and read it. Worldly lust refers to sins that pull and tug at our heart because of our old Adamic nature. That's why John tells us in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, do not love the world nor the things that are in the world. Because if you love these things, watch, the love of the Father is not in you. We cannot come to this idea that because I have been saved by grace, I'm free as a bird to live as I want, to do whatever I want. Grace says, first of all, to you and to me, you are to deny certain things. Worldly lust and ungodliness. Everything that would oppose God or pull us into this old Adamic worldly system. But it also teaches positively as well. Soberly. We're to live soberly. That's more than just not being drunk. Talking about a sensibility of life. Keeping your senses. Now, in Ephesians, Paul says, don't be drunk, but be filled with the Spirit. I've been around a lot of drunk people. And one thing I know about them, once they reach that point, they're no longer sensible. They're insensible. They do stupid, foolish things. Things that they would not do when they are sober. So it's more than just the idea of of alcoholism. It's saying, learn to live your life so that you're constantly living in a sensible, sober way of conducting of life. He goes on to say, righteousness. This is a term that defines that which is right before God and lived out in my life before others. Doing what is right. I think it was Ron Hamilton who wrote the little song Years ago, do right till the stars fall. Do right, do right, do right. Grace teaches us. It instructs us. It trains the mind and the heart of the believer to deny these things and to live in a certain way, to live righteously. And the one thing that I cannot put together biblically is the concept of a believer telling me that because they're in grace, they can walk contrary to the Word of God. And I've heard it over and over again throughout the years of ministry. Don't let that be your, 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 your thought pattern. Because truth tells us that grace will not instruct you in that way. Bad instruction is coming from where else. It's not from truth. It's not from grace. Thirdly, he says, we're to live godly. This conveys the obvious meaning of of close fellowship with God and practicing behavior that is consistent with His nature. And so when Paul begins to talk about this grace that has appeared 
He talks about the manifestation of its revelation in Jesus Christ. And that this grace teaches us, it instructs us to deny certain ways of life and to live in certain aspects of life. But thirdly, look at verse 13. I'm right in the middle of the sentence still. The anticipation that grace brings. Looking for that blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Without laboring too much with the verse, let me point out some wonderful truths that this text has woven into it. First of all, look at the word looking. It's a term that denotes the meaning not only of longing and waiting for, but of eager and certain expectation. Friday afternoon when we flew into the airport, we were coming down the stairs where Mary and Joy and Kitty were waiting. And because of where they were standing, I could not see them immediately. But as I'm coming down the stairs, my eyes are looking like this. I'm trying to look under the, the facade in front of me. To see, and finally, I saw their feet. And I saw their, their legs. And the next step down, I, oh, I could see more of their body. Finally, I could see them face to face. But there was an eager anticipation looking for something. That's the idea of this word. To strain the neck to see. Looking. Secondly, the phrase is blessed hope. This term hope conveys the idea of certainty. This hope is not found like a fond human wish. Well, I hope the Broncos win today. After the last two games, I'm not so sure, you know. No, this word is is rooted and anchored in revealed truth that makes our hope certain. Remember John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6? Jesus says to the disciples, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's place there are many dwellings. And if this were not so, I would have told you. But I'm going away, and I'm going to prepare this place for you. So that when I come, I will receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. One of the saddest things about the journey of life is that through the course of that journey, we say goodbye to loved ones, don't we? Listen to me. If they have experienced the grace of God in Jesus Christ in salvation, it's never, ever goodbye. It is until. Because we have a hope that is anchored in the blessed appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when He appears, the trumpet will sound, the dead in Christ shall rise, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up in the air and meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. That is our destiny. I don't care who sits in the White House. It doesn't change where I'm headed. It might change some of my journey. 
but it won't change my hope. It won't change my destiny because I am looking for something else. The appearing. In verse 11, it's the same word. The appearing. Grace appeared to bring salvation so that you and I could live by looking for another appearing that consummates our salvation. The glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Take your Bibles for just a moment and turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. You see, when grace touches our life in salvation, it transforms who we are in our conduct, and it changes our perspective from temporal to eternal. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, look at verse number 9. For they themselves, speaking of the Thessalonian believers, show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how you turned to God from idols, and to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. You see, when grace has reached our heart in faith, we come to know the salvation of God and we live with a whole new perspective of hope. Quickly, back to Titus chapter 2, verse number 14. The purpose that grace fulfills. Why did God manifest His grace in His Son, Jesus Christ? Well, verse 11 says to bring salvation to all men, making it available. Verse 12 tells us that when we experience that grace, it teaches us how to live. Verse 13 says that that grace touches our life and it changes our whole perspective. We have a new hope. But verse 14 summarizes the purpose of it all. This appearing of grace, verse 14, is where Christ sacrificially gave himself for us. But the purpose that grace fulfills is stated in the latter part of that verse. It says in verse 14, who gave himself for us so that, it's the henna clause, means purpose, intent. He gave himself for us so that something could be Fulfilled the purpose of grace. And what was the purpose? Threefold, very quickly, and our time is gone. Redeem us from all inequity. I don't have time to dwell with this, but let it sink in. You are redeemed from all inequity. There is nothing in your life as a child of God that is not under the blood of Jesus Christ. Rejoice in it. Secondly, purify unto himself a peculiar people. I like this verse because I'm kind of peculiar. You want to know something? So are you. Because the word peculiar just means a special people. A special people of God. He is purifying himself a special people. So that one day for all eternity, he will present us to the Father as a, as a bride without spot and without wrinkle. 
But there's another part of this purpose. We are to be a people who not only are redeemed from our iniquity, purified as a special people of God, but we are also to be a zealous people. People of zeal to live out our lives in good works. This is the purpose of the appearing of grace and the consummation ultimately in glory. Grace truly is amazing. There's a manifestation that grace reveals called the incarnate Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a teaching that grace instructs called sanctification of life, righteous living. There's an anticipation that grace brings as we look for the epiphany of Jesus Christ, His glorious appearing. And there's a purpose in your life that grace completes as we become a people redeemed, purified, and zealous for God. As I close this morning, let me just ask a couple of questions. First, have you, through faith in Jesus Christ, experienced God's grace? Are you saved by grace through faith? I'm not asking what church you attend. I'm not asking what religious ceremony you've gone through. I'm asking, have you placed your faith in the finished work of Christ for salvation. Grace is never earned. Its source is God himself. He extends it to you now through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've never experienced that, I beg of you in Christ's stead, come to Christ. Know his grace. Talk to your pastor to one of the elders. But don't stay outside the sphere of grace. Secondly, having experienced God's grace, are you learning the instruction of grace in your life? Are you learning to deny certain things and to pursue certain things? Listen, Satan would love to tempt you and to test you. He would love to use the allurements of this world to try to mar the work of grace in your life. Don't let him do it. Deny. Just say no to ungodliness and worldly lust. And say yes to sober living Righteous living, godly living. And then lastly, oh, are we straining our neck with that upward look for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ? Every once in a while I find myself making a comment like this. Tuesday night, television is on. Election returns are coming through. I say, you know, one of those tongue-in-cheek things, you know, 
Even so, come, Lord Jesus. <laughs> you want to know something? That should be our prayer every day our heat hit the floor and we see a new sunrise. Maybe today in his presence because of grace. Because grace truly is amazing.